Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called A Nudge Too Far, The Rise of Behavioural Science and Technocratic Rule. In the chair is Tamandra Harkness. So I'm Tamandra, I'm chairing this afternoon's session on Nudge, which I'm quite excited about. Because of the subject of the session, and because when I was tweeting about it, I accidentally made myself want chocolate biscuits because apparently this stuff works. I have brought uh, chocolate fingers. So, speakers, if you, if you finish on time, you get chocolate finger. <laughs> if you all finish on time, you all get two chocolate fingers. <laughs> this psychology stuff's easy. Uh, so we have a great panel of speakers. So uh, we have four speakers. Uh, I'm going to introduce them briefly now, and then they will speak five minutes each. So... Uh, on my far left here, we have Laura Dodsworth, uh, author of A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponised Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic, which I believe is for sale on the bookstore downstairs. Uh, yeah, good. That's the right noise. Uh, she's, but she's also done a lot of very interesting previous things, uh, pre- other previous books that are unrelated. And I just have to say, one of the books was the subject of a documentary for Channel 4, 100 Vaginas. Uh, so, and, and actually one thing that's emerging is most of us on this panel have done a variety of different things. So I, I, don't, know, I don't know if that's relevant to the subject matter or not, but it remains a truth. Meanwhile, at, at the other end here, we have Dr. Nobalale Dangazale. I probably said that slightly wrong, but um, I, I had a good crack at it. Now, Nobalale is uh, a lecturer at the Gordon Institute of Business Science, uh, which is, uh, is that at Warwick? No, that's in South Africa. That's in South Africa. Okay, right. But you also did a doctorate at Warwick Business School where you co-founded Nudgeathon, which is a two-stage crowdsourcing event where, well, it's, I will let you tell us something about it. It's basically it's using behavioural psychology and, uh, and other things and performance. Because Noble Ali uh, comes from a theatre background and is a researcher using video methods uh, so she has taught at, is it Wits University? Yes. In, that's in South Africa, isn't it? Yeah, she taught there and also Queen Mary University of London and the University of Warwick uh, and started Shake Experience, an applied theatre company. So you see what I mean? It's like really a panel with a great lot of uh, diverse experience. On my immediate left, Professor Peter John, who is the head of the School of Politics and Economics at King's College London. Uh, you're not quite his first in-person lecture, but I, I hope the novelty hasn't quite worn off. Third, third you're the third in-person lecture, there you go, imagine that. Author of quite a lot of things, actually. Analyzing public policy, uh, a part of Nudge Nudge Think Think, experimenting with ways to change civic behavior. How far to nudge, assessing behavioral public policy. Field experiments in political science and public policy. And, uh, and also some of his experiments were used in Political Turbulence, How Social Media Shape Collective Action. And you've got a forthcoming book, I think, British Politics and Analytical Approach. So really well qualified and has written lots of things, almost as many things as Professor Frank Faraday, uh, who's written far too many things for me to go through all of them. Uh, an emeritus professor from the University of Kent at Canterbury. New book, 100 Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War over Socialization. Of the many other books, I think some of the most relevant are Invitation to Terror, Expanding the Empire of the Unknown, Culture of Fear, Paranoid Parenting, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, and Democracy Under Siege, Don't Let Them Lock It Down. 
uh, and also, in fact, authority of sociological history. But uh, of Frank's many books, uh, probably the ones that are most relevant will turn out to be the ones I haven't mentioned at all. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, as I say, we will have uh, five minutes each. If I have to show you a yellow card, you have 30 seconds left. If you finish before the red card, you get a chocolate biscuit. So take it away, Laura. Nudges guide you into making better choices by people who know what is best for you. There are now lots of those people in government. Um, I'm not going to go too much into what a nudge is because we've got professors here. But the classic example is that putting fruit at eye level is a nudge, but banning junk food is not. How do we know when a nudge has gone too far? That's the question of today's debate. I'm going to start us off with a quote from Mindspace, influencing, influencing behaviour through public policy, which was co-authored by one of the directors of the UK government's nudge unit. People have a strong instinct for reciprocity that informs their relationship with government. They pay taxes and the government provides services in return. This transactional model remains intact if the government legislates, provides advice to inform behaviour, but if government is seen as using powerful, pre-conscious effects to subtly change behaviour, people may feel the relationship has changed. Now the state is affecting them, their very personality. So has a nudge gone too far when subliminal manipulation changes your personality? It has changed your relationship with the state in the last 18 months. Does nudge go too far when it doesn't stop, when the first nudge doesn't achieve the desired effect and so another nudge follows, and then more ensue? That does rather change the idea of choice. An example of that would be the drive to increase vaccine uptake, which has relied on behavioural science to an unprecedented degree during the COVID pandemic. Incentives such as dropping PCR tests for double vaccinated holidaymakers, as to clothes vouchers, raffles for Euro 2020 tickets, media stories promoting the regret of the infected and unvaccinated, the looming threat of a vaccine passport, finally mandates for care workers all rolled out one after the other. Does a nudge go too far when it bypasses the normal debates? One of the campaigns that the nudge unit is proud of is making organ donation opt out rather than opt in. Because the choice is still preserved, there's very little of the tricky debate. There's no difficult law to pass. There's an obvious net benefit to society, and you do still own your organs, at least while you're alive. But we didn't really debate it. Is it a nudge too far when someone is hurt by the nudging? How about deliberately increasing people's sense of personal threat during a pandemic to make them follow the lockdown rules because they understood the risks of their own demographic too well. Fear is a very destabilizing tactic. I interviewed people who are quite undone by fear for my book, A State of Fear. Some of them identified that it was specifically government messaging and advertising. The 24-7 doom-mongering in the media, the steep red lines of worst-case scenarios on graphs, and the use of terms like COVIDia to shame other and encourage social conformity. One of the Spy B advisors who spoke to me anonymously said, the way we have used fear is dystopian. It's ethically questionable. And in, in another example of harm, the Lone Charge All-Party Parliamentary Group has recommended an inquiry into HMRC's use of behavioural psychology and recommended its suspension. Taxpayers were pressured using 30 behavioural insights and communications, something that's been cited in one of the seven 
known suicides facing, uh, of people facing the loan charge? Who takes responsibility for the harms that are caused? And what ethical framework is in place for assessing those harms? Has a nudge gone too far when it's embedded throughout government? We now have behavioural scientists in the nudge unit, in the cabinet office, in other departments, in Public Health England, in the NHS, in agencies like DEFRA and the HSC, and throughout local governments. And there are even more secretive counter disinformation and terror units which have overlapping work. There's very little transparency. And manifestos have ignored the costs, the aims, the tactics, and the impacts of behavioural science. Behavioural scientists and politicians have called for public consultation, but it's not happened yet. Going back as far as 2011, a select committee noted that there are, I quote, ethical issues because they involve altering behaviour through mechanisms of which people are obviously not aware. But the reason policymakers like Nudge, and why you could argue to a degree that we are under technocratic rule now, is that they avoid costly regulation, campaigning, debates and outright bans. They're a cheap and effective way to prod and prime us into being model citizens. But if you've given up, no, if you have allowed yourself to be nudged towards a greater good, you've given up determining what good is. Now, the mottos of battle of ideas are free thinkers welcome and free speech allowed. So what better place to debate these issues? And I am really looking forward to my co-PAMIS views and learning from them. The irony is that nudge undermines free will. Subliminal manipulation affects our free thinking and it strips away our choices without us even knowing. So beyond being technocratic, nudge is inherently anti-democratic. And you came in without a red card, even the yellow one actually, so you get a chocolate biscuit. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just waiting for the like the public health person in the room to go. That should be an apple. Uh, <laughs> there you go. You didn't even. Uh, okay. Well, there you go. So we've heard all the all the bad things about nudge, but normally you've used nudge. So uh, what's your perspective on it? Good afternoon to you all. I honestly sit on the fence when it comes to this because I have not formally studied behavioral science, but I'm an individual that has been exposed to behavioral science by virtue of being part of the co-founders of Najathon. And for me, I think anything where it is used in access can be problematic, especially if one believes that if you have a hammer, it is one tool that you can use essentially to solve everything and anything that you've got, um, that you're finding problematic. The things that I have noted in my time spent with behavioral scientists is that when it is used for good, behavioral science can have an enormous amount of impact on the individuals for which it is designed for. For example, the uptake of antibiotics and the completion of one's antibiotic regime has been increased because of behavioral science intervention used by um, a colleague of mine, Dr. Uma Taj, um, within Pakistan, where it was problematic to get individuals to start their antibiotics and complete them. However, there are instances where people like marketing companies or even our Netflix start using nudges to their benefit and not necessarily to our consumers or to the individuals for which it was meant to benefit. The three things that I think are important when it comes to anything that is new, anything that is powerful, and anything that has got a lot of backing from policymakers is the fact that we have to educate the people for which the ins insights are created for. And what I have seen when it comes to 
nudging or behavioral science is that it is becoming an elitist form of using certain sciences or insights to benefit certain individuals, especially in certain instances where those that are being nudged are unaware of what it is that is being done. For example, the um, example given by Laura when it comes to the default of your um, your your organs essentially being donated once you pass away. I wondered if an individual um, living in a rural part of Africa um, knew about this default that is being decided on their behalf, would agree to it based on their religious beliefs, cultural beliefs, or their socioeconomic um, background. There's also the fact that sometimes um, the way in which the discussions or the conversations are engaged in, it's not inclusive. At most part, when it is implemented, behavioral science at times favors um, people that are mainstream and not necessarily takes into account how neurodiverse we might be as individuals and how not everything that is designed as an insight can be implemented everywhere. But also, I think that public knowledge as well as um, individuals being aware of what it is that is being done by policymakers is something that is extremely important and something that I have seen lacking. Now, on the other side of the fence, I have seen how democratic approaches to using behavioral science have changed lives. For example, the World Bank looked at how they can use a participatory approach to architecture in solving housing when it comes to Haiti in, in, in light of any natural disaster. Here, it was not just behavioral scientists coming in and essentially saying we need to use defaults, norms, or a certain insight to solve the problem. But we saw a team of architects, community representatives, behavioral scientists, government re representatives, community representatives, as well as the problem owners, the World Bank, coming together and essentially saying, if we look at the cake from different perspectives, what do we see? And here, we found that when individuals are educated, um, given insights, but also part and parcel of the decision-making of what can and cannot be implemented whilst the behavioral science aspect of what it is that we're essentially trying to develop has been implemented is really important and an integral part in playing a role in making those that are going to be recipients of the insights or recipients of the intervention in contributing towards the decision. I believe that, for example, the choice of well, taking away the choice of individuals having, for example, your burgers and fries instead of fruits and salads at a salad bar or at a cafeteria is something that might work in the short run, right? But what happens when the person is not in a situation where that behavioral insight has been implemented? What about educating an individual so that they are conscious of the decision that, they, that has been made on their behalf so that they can repeat that decision in future instances as well? It's all good and well to remove the candy bars from the front of the shop or close to the um, till point, but what about actually informing individuals so that that is a conscious decision that they make on their own behalf so that they don't have to um, rely solely on default as a way of not behaving in one way or another? I believe that nudges have got a front and a backstage element to them. In the front stage, policymakers are presenting them as something that can solve quite a lot of problems, be applied in a lot of situations, but also can be a way of doing what is best for humanity. However, in the background, I wonder to whose benefit, to whose advantage, and at which cost to our community members, as well as individuals that are not necessarily well informed about this, the negative impact of the behavioral insights that are being imposed upon them. 
So are we sitting in the front stage or the backstage, or is it a revolving stage that essentially benefits one or the other or disadvantages one or the other, depending on the insight, depending on the community, as well as the intervention itself? Thank you. Thank you very much. Of course, I feel like I should ask you whether you actually want chocolate biscuits. I'm yeah. lactose yeah. intolerant, but you I'm can polite make an informed well. decision. It's all right. <laughs> I'm just they're, joking. They're I'm plain not. chocolate. <laughs> I don't think there's any. Uh, it says it may contain milk. I'll give you the box. I'm not so you can read the ingredients. <laughs> I'm not lactose intolerant. <laughs> I'm just so I, this is just getting unnecessarily complicated, isn't it? So look, Peter, you are actually unlike everybody else here. You're a professor in. Are you a professor in behavioural science? No, I'm a professor of politics, actually. A professor of politics? What? Yes, okay. I, I do lots of nudges. You do lots I of try, nudges? I try and encourage citizen participation. Good, okay, far voting, away, far away. You've got yeah. actually six minutes. I lied when I said it was five. Six minutes, take it away. Okay, um, where I start is from the desirability of kind of using evidence to inform kind of public policies. So the kind of starting point is we have a kind of state. A state does things... It collects taxes, it runs the health service, it's responsible for public health. All those things are in place. And the question we want to ask is when we elect politicians uh, who hire civil servants, are they making the kind of best kind of public policies? And obviously they can make policies according to hunches, according to the manifestos, which were all legitimate things to do. But I think we think that if they use evidence which is kind of collected, ideally by social scientists or other scientists, to inform those decisions, that's a kind of desirable thing. So right through the 20th century, um, the British state has hired various forms of scientists to kind of give advice, and that goes into the kind of policy process. Um, so the kind of the rise of behavioural sciences, which kind of goes back to the, to the 1960s and the 1970s, is kind of part of that, uh, and it's the way in which sort of when government has to do something, it can sort of do it in such a way as to have sort of good effect. So for example, government often kind of writes letters to various people, still writes letters um, uh, on, you know, for, you know, reminding you about your tax return. The question is, you know, are they doing it in the, in, in the right, in the right, in the best kind of way for the best kind of, kind of effect? Um, so this is kind of what behavioral scientists are kind of doing. They're just pre presenting evidence to policymakers. Now, in terms of the democratic argument, um, it's the politicians who are the elected. They're the people who sign off on these kind of nudges. And I think if the policy process is sort of secretive, that's not the fault of nudges. That is the fault of the, you know, the decision-making process that so much is taken behind doors. But nonetheless, even in that kind of relatively secret British you know, environment of the British state, um, behavioural science has made this impact. And I think it's... And, and from my point of view, I'm really pleased that politicians are taking this kind of stuff seriously because, you know, we spe I spend a lot of time writing all these papers and it's nice that people are reading them and it's good they actually might have an impact that people might take them seriously. So I think, I think it's a good thing this is, this is kind of happening. Um, obviously, I think the question of democratic review is a kind of big question uh, and, I, and I think that's a more general question about our democracy today. Uh, the second point I want to make is that, and I've done a lot, I've, I've got involved practically with nudges. I sort of, uh, so when the nudge unit got set, set up, um, I got consulted about it and started working with some of the civil servants on these kind of nudges. And one is, I don't recognize this kind of terminology of kind of a psychological state. It sort of implies there's, 
you know, a lot of people in central government, white coats on, uh, doing the equivalent of sort of, you know, testing on, on, on rats to, you know, and actually fact, it's not like that. It's about people who are tasked with, with solving a kind of problem, trying to find the best way to, to do that. And also I do a lot of work with local authorities and the typical way this works is you get invited into a local authority and they say, okay, we've got this issue, this is a, this is a real experiment. Um, we, got, we want to try and move blue badge, renewal of blue badges online. How do we do that? And basically what you do is you sit around a table and you think, well, how can we do that? How can we remind people? How can we do that? It's kind of a set of practical sort of problems. And a lot of, a lot of nudges actually, a lot of them are quite commonsensical. So one of the key nudges is, you know, if, is, is reduction of simplification, simplifying documents so that you can read them more clearly. And actually, in, in most experiments I've done, if you just simplify the document and just shorten them out, you actually get a better response because people actually understand it. Uh, so I kind of think a lot of nudges are really helping policymakers sort of get to a place where they want to be. And the really nice thing about behavioral science in these nudges, and you mentioned the Mind, Mind Space report, um, is that they give them kind of choices. So that it, and actually one of the nice things about nudges is that it's, from my point of view, it's not us as experts just telling policymakers what to do. It's saying, well, you, you've got these kind of options uh, and you can kind of test them, perhaps using randomized control trials, and then you select the one you think is the best and has the kind of best outcome. And I think, I think that's, 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 that's a great thing. And I think, and I think a lot of nudges tell, tell people very useful information which they wouldn't otherwise know. Um, so, for example, the classic the classic um, letter which is sent out by HMRC uh, basically tells people how many other people have actually settled their um, taxes at that time as a, as a way to encourage them to, to 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 settle up. And the reason for that is a lot of people sometimes get into a sort of state of um, you know kind of over relaxed partly because they often talk to other people who haven't perhaps paid their taxes. Um, actually, in fact, I did a study with um, the court service. And apparently a lot of people don't pay the court fines. And then they get incredibly surprised that the, when the, that the actual bailiffs actually kind of turn up, they stop believing the letters which are increasingly kind of sent to them. So the nudge is a nice way of communicating that information in a quite an efficient way. In another study, how am I doing on time? Uh, you are, you've got about a minute to okay. go. Okay, so um, the other study was, was about um, uh, one with students, actually, uh, trying to kind of inform students about alcohol. And one of the things about students is they often think that, that all other students kind of kind of drink a lot. Uh, I mean, and this is a kind of image, you know, sort of you know, going back to the young ones and whatever it might be. Um, um, and actual fact, the stats show that's not not students don't actually drink a vast amount. So natural fact, and people often feel peer pressure to to, to, to you know engage in drinking. So actually, when they actually get that final information out, actually that actually might encourage them to make a more informed choice about that. So, as you can see, I kind of like nudges, uh, but. I do accept the criticism that um, people aren't fully informed when the nudge has been delivered. And one of the things that I'm committed to is, I mean, one way is we could have big, big, actually we could have debates like this, deliberate democracy, uh, but for most people, life's too short for that. So I'm developing, except, except, for, except for in places like this, but I'm, re I'm really happy to be here. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the card now. So there's always one speaker. 
it doesn't follow the rules, doesn't it? So um, it was all right until you basically told us we didn't have a life. I slipped into that one very badly. Didn't I? So yes, goodness. Anyway, carry on. Right. I will. Okay. I will not take that bit out of your time. Okay, fair enough. So um, I totally accept that kind of criticism. And one of the things, but one of the things I'm working on is people don't want to sort of spend vast amounts of time. Most people, at least, spend vast amounts of time debating. They actually just want to get on with their lives, but they might want to think a bit. Um, so what we what we want, what we're doing is trying to develop nudges which encourage a degree of kind of reflection while the nudges is 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 is, is being taken and that's we call this nudge plus um, developing a kind of program. Yes, it's nudge plus. It's even <laughs> even better than nudges. Um, uh, and we're testing it uh, with a whole set of experiments on diet, all sorts of things. So I can hopefully report back uh, and show you how fantastic this research program is in in two course. Okay, come back next year and tell us Nudge Plus. Well, I so, so do you want a chocolate biscuit? Am I allowed one? I, did I, I yeah, thought I'd break the okay, rules. Okay, thanks. Well, I see, I know I feel I have to give you one, otherwise I'm discriminating against you just because you told us all that normal people wouldn't be here on a Sunday afternoon. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I know, I actually, I feel a bit, when you said the thing about simplifying documents, I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, I sent out a ridiculously long email to all the speakers telling them every possible thing about the whole weekend. Uh, and I just remember that you emailed straight back. I went, yeah, that's great. How long do you want me to speak for? <laughs> it's because in the document, isn't it? Of course it was in the document. <laughs> but I did go, yeah, I don't actually blame you for not having found that. So it's just like, yeah, just five minutes. Um, so there you go. If only we'd known about nudge theory. Okay, so uh, so Frank, there you go. There you have it. Uh, nudge is just a way of finding evidence for policy or it's a, it's a sinister branch of the therapeutic states. Five minutes, off you go. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm not a fan of nudge. Um, I think that the main problem of nudge is that it's anti-democratic. It basically assumes that there are two kinds of people, the ones that can make choices, they have got the evidence, they're rational and they're scientific, and there are the rest of us who, according to nudge theorists, tend to make irrational choices, and they tend to make choices that are not in their best interests, and therefore they need people who come along uh, because they're behavioral scientists and put them right. Or alternatively, they argue, and I think that's very, very cute, that you and I are too busy with our boring lives. We haven't got time to get involved in debates or reflection uh, because, we're a little bit, because we're a little bit too thick. You know, sort of, uh, you know we'd, we'd rather go down to the pub and, and drink ourselves to death rather than take place in philosophical discussion. And therefore, we're going to do the thinking for you. Right? We're here to think for you because you know, that's who you are. And I think that kind of paternalistic uh, sort of infantilizing of the public is something that I find very uh, unpleasant about nudge. Uh, so therefore, I don't think there is a good nudge. Uh, I think all, all form of nudging uh, is inherently a problem. I think you have to recognize that uh, what we call nudging today has got a long history, even before the 60s, because governments have always relied on advertising, they, they relied on propaganda. But what has happened is that beha when behavioral science kicks in, something new occurs. So when people talk about behavioral scientists having the evidence and policymakers having the evidence, it's not the case that you know, we're talking about nuclear physics or uh, biological sciences. What they mean by evidence is that they've got certain hunches uh, that they think, uh, based on questionnaires and various survey mechanisms, that are really, really good, uh, important for, us, for them to put it forward. And the trouble is, is that that kind of evidence-based policy, that kind of behaviorist policy, changes the very meaning of politics. It doesn't leave politics untouched. So what has happened in Britain in particular, is in the last few decades, 
political life, particularly policy making, has fundamentally altered the, what some people call the politics of behavior. Now, what does that mean? What the politics of behavior means is you remove your eyes from the social, from the socioeconomic issues that confront society, and you begin to manipulate and you begin to look at how you and I behave. You begin to find ways and means of trying to motivate us to adopt certain forms of behavior and at the same time pathologize other forms of behavior. In other words, rather than leaving it up to us to decide what our lifestyle is, how we want to conduct our affairs, we have these evidence-based guys that come along that you know, what you're doing is, is fundamentally wrong. So you find, for example, that in British society, we have a, the bizarre situation where a conservative government decides that one of the big issues of our time is loneliness. So they set up a loneliness minister, Tracy Kratz, becomes the first, well, since when is loneliness an issue for the government? I mean, if I want to live in solitude, and if I want to be with myself, what business is it of all these behavioral scientists to tell me that I'm messed up because of my lifestyle choices? But that's not all they do. They have, I mean, Cameron was, was the word. He's the guy that set up the whole business. Cameron used to think that uh, happiness was an important uh, area of policy making. Now, I don't know if you know what I mean, but happiness is not exactly a, a clear-cut issue because happiness is not something that is evidence-based. You know, if it was evidence-based, then Nepal would be the happiest place in the world, or you know, Borneo or some Central American banana republic. They're all very happy according to the surveys they kind of published. But what they are really doing is basically uh, manipulating our behavior. They're concerned because it's easier to statistically increase our well-being and our happiness than to actually get the economy right and to avoid the crash of 208 or anything of that sort. So the whole policymaking <coughs> moves into this. So for example, uh, governments are not only looking at well-being, they're looking at se sexual satisfaction. I mean, this is weird. Can you imagine somebody like Tony Blair or, or Cameron telling us about good sex? You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, no doubt they have a lot of evidence, but, and so they have sexual satisfaction, raising our self-esteem, parental values. I mean, all of these have become targets of government policy. And what we've seen happening subliminally and very, very slowly is a shift away from what is a political issue. Politics is changing fundamentally. But most importantly, it's changing because uh, as you have more and more of, of experts coming in, and as we're outsourcing authority to evidence-based politics, we forget the fact that good policymaking is not something that can be based on evidence. Because you know, how many times have you heard J Boris Johnson saying, evidence shows? Right, or research shows. Uh, we know that when, every time they talk about evidence shows or research shows, what they are avoiding is making a judgment about what is right and what is wrong. In other words, they vacate the domain of morality. Because it seems to me that what we need are politicians that don't hide behind the evidence, don't hide behind saying research shows, but actually saying, I think this is really good. This is so important and it's so good that no matter what the obstacles are, we're going to promote this policy to get, get, get to move forward in, in the way that we see fit. Finally, um, nudge like all classical forms of social engineering is based upon the idea that the expert knows best. But not just the expert, because I have a lot of respect for a lot of experts, you know, sort of, uh, and because they have a very important role. 
I don't think behavioral science is actually number one a science in the way that I understand it. And I don't think that the expertise that derives from it is anything more than a kind of social engineering that's designed to, uh, in a sense, shift our, our moral norms in a different area. Because it seems to me that the main accomplishment of behavioral science is to try to negate personal and private preferences. It's intolerant of personal or private preferences. It's unwilling to allow us to live with the choices that we make. And therefore, it represents a fundamental threat to what I think is one of the most important values of the liberal enlightenment, which is that of moral independence, of moral autonomy, where we make choices, and we make choices, and we are prepared to live with its consequences. And I don't want anybody short-circuiting that process, and I don't want anybody making up my mind for me or my, my fellow citizens, because if we do that, then we negate the very value of democracy. Thank you. I'm dieting. Now you've got an apple, haven't you? Yeah. And I'm dieting as well. Uh, Frank's using his autonomy to refuse <laughs> chocolate biscuit. But because you did all finish without a red line, everybody gets a second one if they want one. No, they don't want one. No, no. Okay, I'm going to eat them then. Uh, right. So we, I, I'm just going to say we have, we have a slight imbalance on the panel. Evidently, we have two antis, a pro and a maybe. So I am, I am very keen to hear people <coughs> in the audience who think that nudge is, is being misrepresented here or getting short shrift or that it has a value even if it's not being used the right way by politicians. But having said that, it's, uh, it's about free speech and open debate. So very keen to hear your ideas. Picking up on what Frank was saying, do you think that nudge is a symptom or, or a cause? Um, is there something more disturbing underneath all of this which is basically the abjugation of responsibility by decision makers, poor decision making, and really that people should be free to make up their own choices. And if they want to drink a lot and die, that's their choice. I think one way to think about nudges or the way they've been implemented is the idea of marginal gains. Because um, I think that where nudges are involved, such as in design, redesigning of forms and things, I mean, a lot of it's common sense, because you know that things are really badly written and designed. Um, it doesn't take much intelligence to come and prove that. But even when that happens, um, you know, what you'll see in terms of improvement is negligible, marginal. Uh, and, you know, in a sense, kind of relating to what Frank is saying, I guess, where there are improvements, it's very, you know, minor and it's not transformative. Nudge in that respect doesn't really kind of uh, bring about kind of arguments and ideas of how to do things very differently. It's more about just tweaking the system, as it were. I think that's something to kind of really remember. Uh, uh, when the <coughs> nudges think they've got something really good, um, they're not really bringing about a, a very different way of thinking about things at all. Okay, okay, sure. okay. Um, I have a rather obscure nudge reference. The first time I actually came across a nudge reference, uh, I knew somebody who used to live in Wimbledon who was a regional manager of a large chain of pubs, and they chose to implement a, a new set of urinals that they were putting in, in the men's toilets. And they had a, a, a it was a fly that was under the ceramic. Um, so when men were going to the bathroom, they would pee on the fly, rather than peeing on the floor, as men tend to do. And one of the reasons that, one of the decisions that they had to make and the conversations that they had in their regional office was about the number of accidents that people have in the toilets, that men slip and fall and break elbows and wrists and hands or whatever in the toilets. And they did a trial somewhere in the country, I can't remember where it was, but in the year that they had these in the toilets, they had no accidents. 
in the toilets just because men were peeing on the ceramic fly that was in the toilet, <laughs> which is weird, but it's true. So that was the first time I came across the idea of nudge. So, um, and the other way that they he characterised it to me is that often there's a default choice that has to be made. We have to make a choice about how we put something in place. Do we, is it A or B? And what's I think there's a, a, an awful lot to be said for making a decision about that default choice, but as a sort of caution or helping people or you know, if you were making a decision about how many people are going to have an accident in your toilet, you choose to have less people having an accident in their toilet. So I think there's a lot to be said for it. There we go. Thank you. I've learned a lot from your <laughs> Quick question for the panel. Can nudges be justified if those doing the nudging don't follow their own nudge? So the, the obvious example is, is throughout the pandemic, you've had kind of various experts or a kind of clarity or government saying, do one thing, and then repeatedly being caught doing something else. The most glaring example being the Labour Party masking up in Parliament and jollying along at their conference. So first, that's the first part. Second question is, is that because they don't believe in the ideas at all, or is it because they think they're in a different category and it doesn't apply to them? Okay, Kerry Dingle from the Charity World Right and the Film Crew. A uh, couple of quick questions. First of all, I understood, maybe the fly, for example, is a different, but I understood that the jury's out on whether it really works, and does it really work? And secondly, um, to what extent has the rise of Nudge and the whole department of Nudge with Cameron um, coincided with the obsession with the, a politics of our personal behaviour and a, an obsession with, you know, what we eat, drink, do, smoke, exacerbated obviously by COVID in terms of what we can and can't do. And I would see on, on your point, Laura, which I thought were really useful, when you said, is it a nudge too far? I do uh, concur with Frank that it, it does seem to me that nudging is instead of ever winning the argument. And it is a contemptuous attitude to all of us. And that we not only can't be won over, um, but we can't even be, take part in an argument. So it's argument avoidance and uh, treating us like crap, really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in defence of nudging, 50% of people are below average intelligence. I see people <laughs> smoking. Not us, of course. We're all great. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, people are addicted to gambling, and they say, take away my free will to gamble. And some people are susceptible to that addiction. And if you're free and independent-minded, you see these things as restrictions. I shouldn't be restricted. But some people are susceptible to gambling and drug abuse. We could all take drugs and gamble occasionally, and we would be fine. Secondly, you know, obesity and the NHS. Whilst we have an NHS as a society, I think we do need to nudge people to not be obese and smoke. You could say, let's get rid of the NHS, let's stop healthcare being the responsibility of the government. But whilst you've got an NHS, I think, I think nudging is a great idea. And we all do nudging. Also, we have advertising nudging us towards drinking Coca-Cola and Pepsi, which are bad for us. So if the government's nudging us in the opposite direction to be healthier, that might be a good thing. And we're all marketing ourselves. I'm wearing a jacket to maybe make myself look good. Women wear clothes to make themselves attractive. That's a kind of nudging. So would the opponents uh, oppose that as well? <laughs> we all turn male and female. No heckling. No heckling. If you want to get Larry, wait until the drinks I won't say anymore. You've, nud you've nudged me away from saying more. So thank you. <laughs> okay, good. I will come back out again. Uh, but I want to come back to the panel first. So there you go. Well, we've got... I, a lot of different things going on. But I think, I mean, the one thing that has been raised, actually, which is something that needs to be answered by the critics of Nudge, is for most of these things, 
There is a default. There is no, there's no blank slate when you have nudges to, to nudge us away from chocolate biscuits and towards the apple. Uh, there are simultaneously adverts for chocolate biscuits going on. I managed to nudge myself into buying chocolate biscuits by tweeting about this session and joking that I was going to put the tweet by the chocolate biscuits and then I had to buy chocolate biscuits. So I'm clearly exactly the kind of idiot that nudges work on. Uh, so if there's going to be a default, why not pick the default that leans towards the desired policy decision? Who chooses the policy is another matter. But then also there's the thing of, well, what if we choose ourselves to be nudged? I know I myself will do things because I know that that will steer me down a path that future me will thank me for. For example, I've, I've had things in the past where I've gone to a social occasion deliberately on my motorbike because I know that if I go on the motorbike, I won't drink. And although while I'm there, I'll go, oh, why should I come on the bike? I want to drink. But then the next day I go, oh, for my liver's going, thanks. Thanks for that foresight. So is it different if you choose the nudge yourself rather than having it sneakily pushed on you? And the other thing, actually, which I would like to throw in to the panel, I've, I've been following this a bit over the pandemic, and I have to say there are a lot of things that initiatives that have used behavioural science to try and get us to do things, but I've also read a lot of things by behavioural scientists going, we keep telling the government to do this, and they're just ignoring us. One of the things, for example, is giving people various kinds of support to self-isolate if they are actually infectious, which the, the government have not done. So is this a case of, are we getting too obsessed with nudge as a, as a problem when actually we should be looking at the politicians and why aren't they taking responsibility and why aren't they engaging with us? So they are, uh, you obviously can't all answer all the questions, especially the, the three I've just rolled out. Uh, to you. So I'm going to I'm going to take you from that end along with I think. Would you like yeah. to kick us off? I think the one that I'd like to answer um, and picking up on what Frank said, he said all forms of nudges are inherently problematic. And I would like to say I disagree with that. Um, there was a nudge that we um, were a part of developing where we tried to see how we can get women of a childbearing age to take folic acid. It's a difficult one, right? Because you should start taking folic acid ideally before you fall pregnant so that you can prevent um, your embryo or possible baby getting spina bifida. But some women are not aware that they actually are pregnant until um, it's far down their pregnancy. So the window period where folic acid can be beneficial to the child has already lapsed, and sometimes the child then has spina bifida. But if you put folic acid in bread, for example, or in flour, it doesn't harm anybody, it doesn't hurt anybody, and it benefits the women that are of a childbearing age. Now, in an instance like that, I think a nudge like that is beneficial to the women who would have potentially um, given birth to children who have spina bifida. And even if the margin is low for the gentleman at the back, for that one child born without spina bifida, it's a life-changing experience. So even though the margins are not too great, I do believe that nudges like that are really good. However, I did say I sit on the fence and it's comfortably so because I enjoy the sunshine on this side and the rain on the other side. <laughs> to the other side, the problematic thing about sending letters telling your neighbors how good or bad Susie has been down the road can actually cause a witch hunt. In Cape Town, for example, there was a water shortage and what they did is that they sent out letters essentially saying, Johnny on the left is using more water when they shower than Susie on the right and Susie on the right is saving water because she is using grey water to water her gardens, etc. 
Now, when we all know as a community who's the good boy and who's the good girl and who's the good they and them, we find a situation where we want to find out why are you being selfish? Why are you inherently putting us in a position that will put us as well as our children at a disadvantage? And what ended up happening is people would go to the neighbor who is using excessive amount of water and hackle them, tell them how selfish the activities are. And essentially it created divisions within that neighborhood and this um, had to be um, stopped. Um, so in instances like that where the intention is really good, um, where the outcome has worked in other contexts, it doesn't necessarily work when you pick it up and plonk it in another context. So there was where my argument about including the people that you're making the nudge for is important, democratizing it, but also educating individuals. Because perhaps for that community in Cape Town, it could have worked had they understood the underlying good that they're trying to achieve by creating that nudge as opposed to just implementing it as a blanket um, behavioral intervention and not necessarily taking the time to educate the individuals it would impact. So that's why I think sometimes it can be good, but also it can actually have an adverse effect on the people that are supposed to benefit. Frank? I think there's a danger that we call everything nudge, you know, every mm. policy. And we've got to make a distinction between uh, the way that nudge works in terms of the use of behavioral science principally to regulate uh, and to influence uh, people's individual behavior and, and just a commonsensical way in which we make practical decisions. So to take your example on folic acid, I think that the way forward from a democratic point of view is to acquaint society with the benefits of folic acid, to argue may, maybe that it'd be really, really good uh, to put folic acid into bread because it makes the consumption of folic acid much easier whilst at the same time recognizing that there are a lot of women who don't want to uh, take folic acid, who regard folic acid and its consumption in, in a way that's different than you and I. And that's a very legitimate point of view. And therefore, we make sure that there are, there's bread available, you know, uh, baked goods available that don't have folic acid within them. So that's how you have a grown-up political discussion, rather than the way that, it, that people are proceeding in many parts of the world. I think that there's a danger that somehow we take our, our behavioral preferences as the norm and basically pathologize other ones. So the, the, the argument about obesity and its impact on national health, you could use the same argument that people like me, I love skiing. And there are many, many skiers who have a lot of accidents. You know, uh, I broke my, uh, my, my leg twice. My wife broke her back once and her hip once, you know, skiing, and that, that put out a lot of strain on resources for the NHS, so I, I assume. Well, so the point is, is that uh, the logic of that is that it's not fair that people doing sports, physical sports, playing football, rugby, skiing, should, should somehow put all these burden on the NHS because it's a burden on it. And I think that either we have universal health service or we don't, but it seems to me that if, you know, that if people want to be fed, that's their choice. And they should have the the right to live with it without our intervention. It's not a choice that I want to adopt for myself, but it seems to me that there's a, an arrogance about trying to save people from themselves, which is essentially what we are really talking about. We're not saviors. You know, we're all, all of us human beings. And I just want to say that nudge is a symptom of a bigger problem. I, I don't actually have worried that much about nudge, or at least don't worry about nudge as much as, 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 much as I worry about what it is that leads to the politics of behavior. And what leads to the politics of behavior 
is the outsourcing of political and moral authority by our political class. They don't want to take responsibility for debate. They don't want to argue things out. They don't want to have a, a proper democratic uh, sort of political sphere. So instead, they hand things over to the experts. You know, research shows, evidence shows, let that finish the discussion. It seems to me that the real problem is the reluctance of our political classes to take their citizens seriously, treat us like grown-ups, and have the debate out, and know that we might agree on many of the objectives that notch promoters have, but we would have arrived at it democratically rather than by fiat. Not, not just got um, uh, a lot of criticism here, but it, I mean, some of it seems to be leaning towards maybe actually you as a professor of political science, you shouldn't be wasting your time with people sending letters to from the tax saying, have you paid your taxes? You should be getting in there with the, with the big issues and, and, and getting the democracy involved in the huge social issues of our day. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do research on um, voter registration and trying to encourage more people to register votes. Uh, which means that you're trying to encourage you know, people who are excluded from the process to actually get included. Um, and actually, I'm really interested in democratising knowledge effectively. Um, and I mean, one of the things, I mean, in a sense, these, these kind of tools can also be used by citizens to influence kind of politicians. So I did, I did this um, experiment uh, with lobby groups. Basically, we sort of worked these various lobby groups. And we got them to, to send differently worded letters to our local councillors to, to, to try and improve that kind of lobby aspect around the assignment. And, um, and, and actually, one of the, I don't quite know if it was us or whether it was, you know, they would have got a thing anyway, but one of them actually got, there, got the results of their lobby. So I think, I think these things can be empowering. I, and, and, I kind of, and I think I think the key thing is not to get over-obsessed with whether that budget sort of taking everything over and all the rest. I think politics is going on. The democratic process is going on anyway. Boris may say he's being led by evidence, but Boris has probably actually worked out what he wants to do, and it just actually suits him to say the evidence of fracturing just picks the evidence which kind of backs them. I mean, this is, this is going back, this is what politicians do from the beginning of time. It's a messy process. They're, they're basically, you know, what interests in re-election, all fighting all sorts of battles. And nudge, I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's only a real small part of that. And I think I think there's some some comments at the back, and I think from you know does nudge work or not all the issue of kind of marginal gains. I think you know I think nudge does work, uh, well not all nudges, but quite a lot of nudges work, but they tend to be kind of relatively small effects, two or three percentage points, four or five percentage points for most kind of nudges. Um, so you know nudges are not going to transform the whole world. They're not going to on their own deal with problems like climate change and all that, but they can be a helpful part of the toolkit. A bit like, you know, if you use laws or regulation, finance, you can use nudges to help you get there. And of course, a lot of nudges can be scaled up. So effectively, you know, those two, three percentage, two, three percentage points, if it's scaled a lot across a, lot, a large population, can actually lead to significant um, changes. I mean, nudges do, I mean, they don't always work at all times. They can sometimes backfire. Uh, and sometimes they've got a tendency to decline over time. So you can repeat the nudge doesn't kind of always work so strongly second time you know people get kind of used to nudges um and i think that is partly why i'm very interested in the kind of you know the democratic side of nudges and actually informing people while they're being nudged uh and not keeping nudges you know secret a sort of secret process that is to me that is the way forward um but it's the you know, nudges you know nobody ever claimed that nudges are going to kind of solve all the world's problems but 
the opposite that we should completely reject this useful tool to me doesn't actually follow either so that's me okay laura what do you think um well first of all it's been really interesting listening to everyone and there were some really good really good questions i've got quite i've made quite a lot of notes can i just go through some yeah, of yeah. them quickly okay so first of all, i feel I feel sorry that you 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 know you, you kind of dug yourself a little bit of a hole there but it, it it did tap into something which is that there is something kind of paternalistic about nudge and there was a chap at the back so don't forget 50 percent of the population is below average intelligence and so there are people that need their decisions to be made for them because they're not capable and actually i think it's inherently disrespectful to people to say that they can't make rational decisions or that they don't have the time to make a choice or they don't have the time to debate I think that we should assume people are capable and rational and know how to decide for themselves. And maybe deciding for themselves means making mistakes and being unhappy. This kind of recent trend of thinking about our well-being, I'll be honest, I'm just as unhappy about it as fears. I don't want the government to concern itself with my fears or my happiness. Because I want to make mistakes. And in a way, I also want to be unhappy. Some of my most profound personal and professional growth has come through making mistakes. And it's important, we make permanent changes to ourselves as a result of living life. And you know, the, the quest of humanity is, is looking for the good life. And that has to be up to us to determine. You see, nudges are not permanent fixes. In the room today, the word nudge is being used interchangeably with lots of other things. Now, a nudge is part of the choice architecture that preserves choice. So for instance, putting folic acid in bread is not a nudge. You haven't got any bloody choice. You've got to have folic acid in your bread. Mm. So, um, like Frank said, you can educate people. Just keep educating them. Give them information about what the advantages of folic acid would be, and that then that people make a choice. A nudge might be that you make bread with folic acid much cheaper than bread without folic acid, because then you still have a choice. Now, on choice, on the scale of choices, I feel there's been a little bit of a playing down of little marginal gains of choices and nudges. Well, sometimes they're huge. Okay. Cass Sunstein and David Thaler, they're considered the, the fathers of Nudge. And David Thaler recently described nudge, uh, vaccine passports as a perk. Okay. Now, the, the, they really like vaccine passports because the idea is you can make a choice to be vaccinated and then access all the products and services and employment and public spaces that will require vaccine passports. Or you can make a choice not to be vaccinated and not to access those things. It's still a choice, right? It's just a perk, but it's a big choice. Sometimes nudges are big. And the reason that this debate is on today is because we've seen in the last 18 months how fundamental behavioral science is to, to everything. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a behavioral science document I read that describes locking up our biscuit tins, helping those stupid fat people to lose weight. But in the last 18 months, it's not the biscuit tins that were locked up, it was us. And that's why some nudges are quite big and we do need to have the debate about what's acceptable, what it costs, what the aims are, and what the ethical framework is. Now, as a nudge is a type of subliminal manipulation, I would argue that those in government, every time they want to do a nudge, you think, well, is there an alternative? Is there something we can do with people which is completely honest and upfront? and really preserves all of their choice and their rational decision-making. And we don't know if that happens. I think it probably doesn't. Um, any more points? <coughs> oh, and simplifying documents. Well, this sounds really innocuous and really nice, doesn't it? 
But um, I had one of my teenagers' vaccine consent forms recently, okay? Now, you know, the top is green, and it's got a big tick next to it, and it's the top choice for I consent, and the one below is in red with a cross, and it's lower down. So sometimes simplifying forms is also about eliciting the answer that they want. So form design isn't always a question of making your life simpler, unless simpler is guiding you into the decision that the person who sent you the form wants you to make. Okay, great. So there's still loads going on. There's loads of hands. I just wanted to push back slightly on Frank Frady's idea. I think everyone here is very much in favor of public debate. That's why we're here. But at the same time, every single day, administrators have to make thousands of decisions. And there are a lot of things which we can't just solve like this. I mean, for example, when we have when someone is running a, a tube station and they want to design the network to get people from one platform to another, they set up a system that inconveniences individuals but actually makes the system work better. And we're not going to have a public debate about that. And similarly, in a hospital, we, people put up some sanitization stations uh, to encourage a, a cleaner, better ward. But equally, should we have a debate about every single decision like this? People need to make decisions every day, otherwise society just doesn't function. And I think it, you know, there's an absolute value to public debate, but we also need to accept that um, decisions have to be made and, and some things need to just be encouraged in this respect. Do incumbent governments have an advantage using nudge? For example, they can use public health policies to sort of rotate the citizenry to a political position uh, for the next election. Um, so you, you make something more acceptable and more desirable for one of their um, manifesto points that will make you more positioned to vote for them. And it, is that an unfair part of government? And just a quick one, uh, all these forms that have yes and grayed out no somewhere hidden away or in light gray fine font, yeah, that is really annoying nudge. <laughs> a couple of points. I'll, I'll make them brief, though. But I was just thinking, a lot of this discussion, um, you, you can see it sort of coming out, the, the disdain for ordinary people that comes into the whole discussions around nudge. And, I mean, when you talk about, you know, oh, well, 50% people are less than average intelligence. Well, of course they are. That's what average means. But, <laughs> but, but, it, but it actually it reveals something about the way that people are looked at. You know, it's like saying, oh, you know, well, half the people are stupid, so they should be nudged. But also these things are uneven. You know, we've talked about incentivizing things. So, for example, if you make the price of bread more expensive, you know, if it's not got folic acid in. Well, some people can make that choice, but some people have to buy the cheapest bread. So, you know, who are you nudging? Well, you're nudging the people who can't afford to make a choice. Um, people who can make a choice, you know, that, that's it. You see it a lot in transport policy, and that particularly bugs me. It's one of my bugbears. Um, you know, they make it almost impossible to sort of find your way around your own city. I drove into Newcastle city centre and I couldn't work out how to get home, you know, even though I've lived there for 30 years. You know, but, uh, but they don't incentivise public transport. They don't make it cheap to travel into town. What they do is make it really difficult to drive. Um, so it's about how, how these nudges work and what sorts of policies you're looking for. I'd far rather see cheap public transport, but that wouldn't be a nudge. That would just be a good policy. <laughs> Is there a danger here, though, that if we like something, it's a good policy, and if we don't, it's an evil nudge? I have to say, to be fair to the guy who originally said the 50% thing, I think that was the joke, 
I think he was he was actually joking. Thank you, Tamandra. Brilliant nudge tweeting, by the way. It's got me along to this. Oh, yeah, sorry. Can you stand up? Stand up, yeah. Brilliant nudge tweeting that got me along to this event. Um, I wonder, lots of the discussion today has been about how nudging is almost replaced trying to win the politi political argument. And I wonder, in that sense, if people almost favour having more laws, because even though they might disagree with the contents of the law, the aim of the government is at least open and transparent and then can be repealed by government in the future. So, for example, I'm probably one of the few people in this room that supports the um, new Labour government smoking ban, uh, which I think has had a brilliant uh, social health benefit. Everyone else here might disagree. Um, but at least with that, you've got a very clear piece of legislation introduced in 2006 or 2007, and a government in the future could repeal that. Same with different bits of health and safety legislation, like seatbelts. At least with that, it's possible for an argument in the House of Commons to be had, rather than taking place behind the scenes. So I wonder if counterintuitively, some people here actually want more laws, even if they don't agree with them, but just be able to have something to argue against that's open and transparent. Thank you. Very good point, and raise a lot of interesting questions. So I have two questions. One is, short, uh, do you think that uh, nudging goes further when the legitimacy of the state is weaker? And secondly, um, those in favour of nudging, how far would you go? Uh, I ask the question because I live in Italy, where on the 15th of October, either you have the vaccine passport or you pay for a negative vaccine test every two days yourself or you can't go to work anywhere and you can't be paid to and I won't tell you the story of the many nudges that have gone on over the summer uh, to bring up the vaccination rate in Italy but it's been very self-conscious you know you can't eat in a restaurant you can't travel on a long-distance train or bus it's been very gradual and it's been very conscious but it does also have its limits because the legitimate state in Italy is many people well, no, is not strong. And it does also turn many people uh, against doing things like vaccines, so it's very problematic. Okay, good, interesting insight, thank you. Yeah, well, we spent the weekend talking about things like solidarity, uh, collapse of trust, uh, and the politics of fear. Uh, and actually, this is encapsulated in this session in many ways, about what we think about people. And often what people who are uh, elected representatives think about the public and the people. I was really interested to hear the point about addiction made it alongside stupidity and everything because in a way the narrative in the last couple of decades has been that we're all addicted to something whether it's uh, drugs or sex or something and some the whole notion of your own conscious personal responsibility or the right to make wrong decisions in some people's opinion that's called tolerance and enlightenment thinking has gone out of the way but then somehow you have to have this imposition from outside rather than thinking about how to have better hospitals or transformative infrastructure it's constantly an attempt to uh, intersect with our personal decisions. And I just want to remind ourselves, right, that from design to everything else, many people who are never educated uh, actually transformed the world, right? The public had the ability to make choices and make history and inform all sorts of things. And I think we need to rekindle that spirit, a sense of belief and confidence in one another to make the right and the wrong decisions. You can criticise as much as you want. And we should insist and demand upon that from our leaders and not to patronise us. And it's on us to do that with our fellow citizens. And I, I, it's great that you all want to applaud each other, but I, I'm really keen to get one in. So if you could restrain your applause. I, I, know it, I know it goes against everything, but if you just restrain your applause so that more people get a chance to speak. can't really follow that. I want to talk about the health service. It's less exciting. But I am interested in this relationship between sort of the failure of public services and yet their extension further into our lives. You've certainly got that with the health service over the pandemic. 
Um, you know, we were shut down because of the incapacity of the NHS. It was then lionised even further. We're going to see the extension of kind of health intervention through nudge, and yet you can't get a doctor's appointment. It's a really bizarre situation. I think the um, what happened with organ donation is also salutary. So you had in the 1990s a series of scandals over the retention of body parts, an inability to deal with that politically and explain to people why body parts might be kept, an over-formalisation of the process of consent, and then the retreat from the argument, and now you just have a default, you give your organs unless you withdraw your consent. That works in the short term, but in the long term it is a failure, not just because people aren't given the choice, but because you can't make the argument for something that's actually public-spirited can't win people to that. A, a mundane example of um, high street nudge that may be familiar, uh, pairs of rubbish bins. Um, one, the recycling bin has a picture of uh, lots of nice shiny recycling bottles and cans and things that you get. And you think, so if you put something in this bin, uh, that's what you're helping make. The non-recycling bin, on the other hand, has a picture of a filthy landfill site with seagulls <laughs> circling overhead. You're, you're a good person. You don't want your rubbish to end up there, do you? But I actually think you could put another set of pictures on those bins. On the non-recycling bin, you could put a picture of, say, Cardiff Stadium, which was built on a landfill site. And on the recycling bin, you could put a photo of one of those grim uh, Chinese uh, recycling centres where we ship all the, the recyclable stuff that we have no demand for over here. Um, so, you know, this is you know, a clear case of nudging to make a one-sided political point, but it's actually... Um, that can only happen because that discussion is not happening in the wider world. So maybe uh, the money and energy that's being uh, put into nudging would be better directed by fostering that sort of discussion, say, for example, by um, sponsoring the future battles of ideas. Hi, um, I'm currently studying economics, so I'm finding this really interesting. Um, I just wanted to say I've, I've heard the word intelligence come a lot up, up a lot today when talking about intelligence, but um, sorry, when talking about nudges, but... I don't think it's always to do with intelligence, and actually a lot of the time I think nudges help us when we aren't always thinking clearly. Clearly, And I, I don't know about anyone else, but I certainly have times where I'm not thinking particularly clearly. And I think when we're out and about and, and looking at things, not necessarily thinking about why we're doing what we're doing or, or what's happening, actually nudges can direct us in a way that, that give us a reason to do what, whatever we're doing. So. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I, I, I'm going to say, I, I, uh, I really empathise with this thing of it's not necessarily that you're stupid, but you don't want to think about every choice. I I find I'm constantly going, don't make me think about that, just just give me the thing, because I don't really care about it. If it's something important, I'll think about it. But, um, but then I am torn, because I fundamentally believe in autonomy. So I'm like, can we have a nudge system that takes the weight off me for the things that I simply don't care about? but actually leaves my autonomy attacked for the things that I do care about. If, if you and the panel could answer that question for the end of the session, I'd be very grateful. Uh, I, I guess what I was thinking is that behavioural science is just about uh, understanding why people make the choices they make. And I think there's a difference to be made uh, than just thinking about the nudges themselves. So people are feeling very stressed about the nudges being sinister, but I think there might be a way to kind of bridge the gap. Um, so if we're talking about wanting debate, that's because of... Uh, maybe a prevalence of people in this room having a strong desire for autonomy and that helping them make their choices. Um, and so I think there might be something about that. So it's not intrinsically sinister to want to understand why people make the choices they make, but it's just about how we use that information. And using that information can be positive. It's just whether or not it's being hidden from you.
Very good point. Well made. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, I just want to say I'm slightly stunned at the rosy or perhaps blinkered view some of the panel are involved in, in, in nudging seem to have of it. I mean, this idea it can be used for good or democratically. I mean, it necessarily can't be neutral or benign. I mean, a function of behavioral science is to alter behavior to the benefit of its employer. I don't see how that can any, ever be objectively good. Also, it, it can't really... It, it, it treats people as a means to an end, and it necessarily does this surreptitiously by, by, by nudging. I mean, I don't see... I don't see how even behavioral science is being given such credibility. I mean, it is social psychology. That's what it is, which has been the most debunked um, form of pseudoscience in the past century. I mean, it, it has a 40% replication rate, which means it's less it, it's more false than true, yet it's never been more influential. I mean, what is... Do, I don't understand how people can go along with that so easily. I mean... <laughs> okay, I think that's a definite no from the guy in the middle. I wonder if um, one of the more insidious aspects of nudge is that it's reframed what a good choice and a bad choice is. It's not like every decision has a good option and a bad option. It's that the choice I make is the good choice, and the choice that somebody else makes for me is the bad choice. Or vice versa? Perhaps. <laughs> um, has there been much research on perverse outcomes in nudges when the affected population are aware of them? Uh, so w once a population becomes aware that the government is nudging them, how much backlash do they get and how many people do you get just being like, well, screw you, I'm going to do the opposite thing, you know? I, I have a feeling, actually, from way back when I did work on a social psychology radio series, there is actually a phrase for that, isn't there? I can't remember. Anyway, I'll let you think but about it. You're the expert. But there is there is actually a phrase for something like backlash effect, where people or fact, no, fact actually, the literally no. I'm sorry, it is. It's literally the, the it was literally the screw you effect. The yeah. well, it's literally where people are like, oh, you want me to do this? Screw you. It's, it's called a cluster fuck. You know. <laughs> I think something that really bothered me throughout the whole pandemic with the government messaging, which was basically constant nudging was that it just showed how much they didn't trust us to behave responsibly and to behave well. So instead of just being given information about, you know, who who is most at risk from COVID, which we, we all knew very quickly was older people, you know, kids are told, you're going to kill granny if you give her a hug. And it's just, I find it very sinister. And I think it's a trend that has sort of was highlighted in all of the Brexit debates, actually, where we were told you shouldn't even have had a referendum because you're just not clever enough to know about the EU and to be able to make that kind of decision or, you know, you voted the wrong way and that kind of thing. And I just, I worry that this trend of sort of, of behavioral pol uh, politics and nudge politics isn't going away. And I'm wondering <coughs> what, what can we do about it because it, it isn't democratic. And I would like to see politicians show that, that they do trust their citizens. I think one thing that's occurred to, to me throughout this debate is the huge spectrum of nudging that, 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 that has appeared. We've got one on, on the extreme side from Professor Ferredi where we've got David Cameron and Tony Blair telling us how to have good sex and this contempt for, for what, what politicians regard as an ignorant underclass, which I think most of us can, can regard it, that idea as, as contemptible and, and nothing that we, sh we should be pursuing. But then I see on the other extreme end things like placing a little fly in, 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 a, in a toilet urinal, or just cutting out all of the jargon uh, in, 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 a, in a complicated document, or just 
giving us clearer signage within within a train station to get us to, to the other side, which I think each of us can have a, make a decision on, on where we draw draw the boundary. I personally think that some of those more minor nudges are, are acceptable, but I think we should all regard that there is a very broad spectrum which we've been talking about here. Yes, very good point. Thank you. Yeah, I want to challenge the idea that I think was, was also start, I see raised quite a lot in conversations about nudge by um, policymakers, often that participatory approaches or deliberative democracy approaches or citizen juries are forms of consultation that suddenly make any decision um, uh, made as a result of them com completely justified and, and thoroughly consented to. Because um, on, on a fundamental level, I think it, it's, those mechanisms are still at least quite te technocratic um, experimental labs for various forms of social policy that on the one hand, yes, might influence user design, but, but it's not the, the being in the room that matters. It's, it's having a bunch of guinea pigs served up on a platter to a policymaker to be told what they should do that I think is the thing that really, really riles people. Uh, hopefully everybody actually got to speak, which is marvellous. So you have probably two or three minutes each to answer all of those questions, deal with some big topic. I mean, some questions that came up for me were legitimacy, tolerance, uh, explicit laws versus implicit nudges. Is it a retreat from the argument? Is does Can you use nudging and understanding together? Do, are we redefining what a good and a bad choice are? Uh, I mean, frankly, if we can answer all those questions in the next 12 minutes, I think we've got the future of democracy sorted. So good luck, guys. I'm going to take you in the same order that I took you first off, I think. So, Laura, okay. you're two or three minutes. Obviously, you can't answer everything, but... You know, no. answer what you want so to answer. So many good questions. Um, well, somebody's uh, point wasn't addressed earlier, which was about um, politicians not following their own nudges, but really that was rules. And I'm going to give one... Uh, well, the example you gave was the Labour politicians uh, wearing masks in Parliament, but not at, their, at their, their knees up. Well, that's interesting, you see, because masks were introduced partly to be a signal. And if, if those Labour politicians really believed that masks were protecting their health, they'd have been wearing them when they were doing karaoke and dancing. So yes, they know there is signal, they're playing the game. Um, I think there was a really interesting point raised about the legitimacy of the states, whether uh, laws would be more useful than nudge. I completely agree. You know where you are with the law. We can see it, we can debate it, we can go through the democratic process. It's a lot more upfront than a nudge, isn't it? Um, Another really good point that was made was about choice, um, about choice being easier for some people than others. You know, maybe some people can afford the expensive bread without folic acid. That was just a made up example I gave before. There's also the idea that some people might be more susceptible to nudges than others. You know, 20% of people now have COVID anxiety syndrome. Their, their fear uh, is out of scale of the actual threat of COVID. And it's hard to extricate how much of that is due to public health messaging, i.e. propaganda, some of it, and how much to do the real threat of COVID. But there's, there's something in there about equity. What's, what's the consideration of equity in behavioral science? The fact that some choices are easier for others to bypass than, uh, than for other people. So the, the example about Italy over there, you know, if you're really rich, perhaps you can just get your your COVID test every week and if you don't have a COVID pass but if you're poor maybe that's not an option. Um, nudge is not a neutral mechanism. I'm going to pick up on what somebody said over there. There is this idea that 
that the nudge itself is just neutral. It's just whether you take somebody towards a good end goal or a bad end goal. We'll come back to what I said when I kicked off today. Who determines what good is? And the behavioural scientists don't question the ingests they're given either. So if we think about one of the really big advertising campaigns in the last year, it was don't look him in the eyes and tell him you never break the rules. So this is all about behaviour. This was about shifting the blame onto you. Oh, COVID spreading because of your behaviour, because you're breaking the rules. But policymakers would have known that one of the greatest causes of severe illness was nosocomial infection. You can't do anything about that. That's because hospitals are built like little cities. So um, that deflects away from policy and what's really going on, and it just pins it on your behaviour. Um, there was a point made about perverse, perverse incentives. There's two examples of this. First of all, the threat of the vaccine passport may backfire. May, may, it may miscarry quite badly. There are a few studies that show that while there is an initial uptake in vaccination, it does also create a cohort of people who are quite determined to retain their autonomy and to, to not be coerced into getting the vaccine. And another one is that some very punitive fines were introduced in the last 18 months for bad behaviour. Now, fines create perverse incentives for who's collecting the revenue as well. So, so your, your fine would go to the local council and then do they have an incentive to employ more COVID marshals in order to, mm -hmm. to uh, fine you more to get more revenue because some local authorities are on the brink of going bankrupt. Finally, um, to conclude what I want to say, I mean, this is a really healthy debate. And um, chap over there said, where do we draw the boundary? Well, this is the point. We haven't been consulted. The public hasn't had this debate. And I think it's really important that a range of, a range of um, experts, you know, the behavioral scientists, let's let them in the room, the psychologists, the mental health experts, the lawyers, the civil liberties experts, and, and lots of community representatives, and all of us should be involved in what nudge and behavioural science looks like in the future, because it's done to us without us knowing. Thank you very much. I, I feel I should say, to be fair to behavioural scientists, some of the people who have been saying vaccine passports will backfire because they increase initial intake and then they will actually diminish overall vaccination rates have been behavioral scientists so uh you know we can we can talk about the uses of this stuff but there are also there are people in behavioral science saying don't do that that's a terrible idea uh okay no Malali, you've got two or three minutes whatever whatever you'd like to cover um i think the conversation today has been enlightening and the the question i have is is our fundamental problem the fact that the nudges are being done without us consenting, without us being included in their decision making, or do we fundamentally believe that nudges are problematic in and of themselves? Um, and that's, I think, what I'm going to be ruminating over, you know, on my way home, that is it the fact that we feel that the decision is being made on our behalf? Um, Laura, to your point, yes, um, the default of putting folic acid in flour is a default in and of itself and not necessarily a nudge. A nudge, um, when we discussed it, was looking at whether a consultant could ask a person that is of a childbearing age, have they considered taking folic acid because they are thinking of falling pregnant or even putting it on a pregnancy test that, you know, now that you've taken a pregnancy test, consider taking folic acid. But the 
other thing that you pointed out is sometimes we conflate issues, right? We're talking about defaults, we're talking about policies, we're talking about nudges, we're talking about choice, um, and it all gets put into the same melting pot. And essentially, we are um, discussing whether or not we have got the freedom to make the decision for ourselves. I did start off by saying that, you know what, I sit on the fence when it comes to that. And with every good, there is evil. And with every evil, there is an element of good. Not to totally, but there are certain things that we can draw from um, the, the bad that is in the world that teaches us about the good. There was a question earlier on by the gentleman about if I want to drink as much as I want, let it be my choice and let, me, let it be up to me to essentially decide that government shouldn't choose that on my behalf. But if Laura is on the other side that has chosen to take a motorcycle as opposed to drinking excessively, meets an individual that has decided to drink excessively and potentially drink and then drive, them colliding into each other is going to be problematic because now her choice has been infringed by his right to decide whatever it is that he believes is good for him. Now, um, I suppose I wasn't here in the beginning to answer with a yes or a no. I made my um, liminal stance very public because it is an ongoing debate within myself because I've seen the really good and I've seen the really bad, but also I've seen the arrogance with which certain Behavioral scientists believe that it can really solve for all problems, but also the humility with which some behavioral scientists approach each and every problem with the democratic stance and the real in, like, interest in figuring out how do different parties play a role in making this collective decision. What am I saying in short is, at least it started us talking about the benefits of psychology, economics, um, social sciences. It's raised the bar when it comes to how we think about what we make decisions about or not. It started making us think about whether or not democracy is actually being something that we are practicing or something that is merely a principle. So I think the debate should be ongoing, um, but where behavioral science does have its benefits, I do think that they are quite important and should be things that are implemented and supported. So yeah, I think that's where I'd like to pause. Thank you very much. So Peter, you've got two or three minutes to- uh, Save nudge. To yeah. save nudge. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I thought of that word which you're looking for. It's called reactance, doesn't it? Reactance. Yeah, no, I literally have heard the psychologists say that fuck, it's fuck you. Yeah, that, that's what it means, right, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a right term for that. Okay, basically. so you're right, Peter. Reactance, reactance Sorry, happens when, people, when people recognise their choice has been kind of limited, they basically kick off against it and they just want to do exactly the opposite of what the person intends, even if it might be make themselves even more worse off. And I think Nudge actually lives in that territory too. And a lot of questions here about sort of legitimacy, consent, and I think I think most people uh, probably have you know a sense are quite smart. They actually know what the, what the government's up to. You know, they actually know what, what message where the message is going to go. They're not they're not necessarily being kind of tricked. And I think the secret of nudges is really for uh, people in government to actually have a kind of a kind of dialogue with citizens about what their behaviour might might be. And it says all the government is saying we think you might want to go this direction. It's up to this up to the it's up to the individual to to agree or not agree with that. So it's really about that kind of dialogue. And that's kind of where I want to go. I mean, and the other thing you talked about was, you know, most of the time you want to be switched off and certain times you really want to be aware. And that's kind of what's called system one, system two. System one is your automatic system. System two is your kind of conscious reflect system. And we need a kind of smart way with nudges to go between the two. In a sense, you know, again, if you want to go down a sort of, you know, you know down a one-way system, you don't want to have to think, oh, here's a sign, I'll follow it. You want to just do it naturally. But, it, but, but for really important things, 
and those that, that include matters of kind of politics and decision making. We want reflect. So in a sense, we want nudges to work. I think within that, within that overall system. So I think I think there's a future for nudge, but it's connected to all these other political debates: the quality of our democracy, decision making, whether politicians really use evidence or not. Uh, and I think it's I think it's unfair just to beat it over the head for things which it's not really trying trying to do and use and use it you know in in, in linking linking to you know more democratic objectives hence my program of nudge plus which is my plug for now the title the title of my next book so uh, nudge plus excellent we'll get back next year so it's about nudge plus thank you very much Okay, Frank, I mean, technically you have about a minute, but obviously I'm going to give you the same time as everybody else, at least, to... It's very kind of you. Um, Why did the whole conference, in fact? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, it's not nudge that's the real issue, but the politics of behavior that underpins it, which tends to turn virtually every issue in our society into a public health problem and depoliticizes the public sphere. So I can live with flies in the toilet when I go in there, I, I'm not going to have any problem with that. And uh, probably my pants will be, as a result of that, far cleaner than they would be otherwise. <laughs> and, 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 and I can live with signages and railway station <clears throat> and anything that is practical. You know, that's not nudge. That's just being practical about it. And nobody argues that we have to have a debate over every minor issue that confronts us. That is really silly. The debate is really about the politics of behavior. I'll give you an example of what I mean. One morning I'm listening to the, <clears throat> to the Today program and this behavioral scientist, it's my Apple Watch that's keeping an eye on me, <clears throat> and this behavioral scientist, I think her name was Professor Susan Mitchie from UCL, gets on and in this, you know, she kind of comes across, sounds like God, you know, like a, the prophet, you know, Susan that's come down to earth. And she says, behavioral science has decided that uh, for the foreseeable future, if not indefinitely, we in Britain will no longer be shaking hands with each other. Yeah. Behavioral science has decided that we're going to be practicing the, the rituals of South Korean, Chinese, and Japanese society and wear masks most of the time in public. And she says this like as if... Uh, in a most fatalistic way, this is what behavioral science tells us to do. And we have no choice but to follow because that's where the evidence leads. And the number of times she uses the word evidence, the E word, all the time, is, is almost designed to reinforce the previous point because the mere repetition of evidence and research apparently clinches the arguments. And to me, call me old school, old fashioned, living in a world where I cannot shake your hands, when I cannot kiss you on the cheek, where I gotta wear a mask is unthinkable. It's not a world that I wanna inhabit, no matter what. And the very idea that there are people who, in a sense, are, are now already thinking of what, uh, what will happen in the future in this regard, I find that unacceptable and even a little bit scary. I'm not a, I don't get afraid very, very easily. So it seems to me that what we have to worry about is not specific practical suggestions that are made, you know, we can live with all that. It's when the politics of behavior trumps politics. And where there are individuals in our society who put themselves up as authorities that can make decisions about our very futures in the most fundamental ways. And I think that's really the issue at stake, rather than the fact that occasionally some behavioral scientist has got a good idea 
about how to get the best possible result in a toilet in a pub. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Thank you, the panel, for a great debate. And I, and I think it's very much me that's going to kick off debate into the drinks reception. Thank all of you and all of the audiences who've made this weekend such a fantastic return to live debate. So can I just get you to give one more last round of applause to everyone who's made this weekend happen? Which is you, it's all the speakers, all the organisers, the volunteers. Everybody who's made this happen. And see you in the drinks reception. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.